Last week was the one year anniversary of the official declaration that COVID-19 was a global pandemic. As we reflect on the year that we have lived through and as hope springs forth with vaccination options, an updated timeline for receiving those vaccinations, as well as the promise of warmer weather and the opportunity for outdoor gatherings again, I've heard a lot of talk about a return to normal. But what is normal? Wikipedia tells us that normality is a behavior that can be normal for an individual when it is consistent with the most common behavior for that person. Normal is also used to describe individual behavior that conforms to the most common behavior in society. However, normal behavior is often only recognized in contrast to abnormality. We've lived through a lot of abnormality and chaos in the past year. Not only did we have to navigate an unprecedented pandemic, which disproportionately affected marginalized people, we also continued to hear story after story of violence against black people, including Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Aubrey, George Floyd, and many others whose names we don't know, whose stories didn't make the national news. Everything was changing, and at the same time, so much stayed the same. The unrest was almost constant. And now, as the names Breonna Taylor and George Floyd are in our news cycles again, with trials and settlements and anniversaries, as violence grows in recent months and days against Asians and Asian Americans, we are called to something different. We are called to reform. And Jesus shows us the way. In today's story from the Bible, it is the week of Jesus' crucifixion. He has just entered Jerusalem in a subversive parade, and tensions are high. John 12, 20 through 33 tells it this way. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and thought that it was thunder. 
Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. So lore has grown about Jesus in this time. And when people outside of the community ask to see Jesus, Jesus proclaims the vision of his ministry. In order for the seed to bear fruit, it must die. Those who follow Jesus must go where he goes. Whoever tries to retain their life will ultimately lose it. And this answer makes everyone listening uncomfortable. The Messiah is supposed to live forever, not die. And Jesus is once again denying expectations and asking his followers to do the same. I wonder if this isn't how we experience Jesus sometimes too. We want to see Jesus, but only on our own terms and within our own set of expectations. I wonder if when we ask to see Jesus, like the Greeks did, that we really want to see Jesus. Or are we feigning interest because that's what we're supposed to do? That's what a good Christian would do. Or we ask, but we don't really want the real experience of Jesus. Because seeing Jesus might cause a discomfort that we'd rather not experience. I suspect that it's that last thing. We may ask truly to see Jesus, but we are unprepared for what that experience will be like. Because following Jesus sounds wonderful, right up until Jesus tells us that those who love their lives will lose them, and those who hate their lives in this world will keep them forever. I like my life, Jesus, we might say. I've got a beautiful family. I have a lovely home. I have friends. I have uh, a job that I love, right? I love my life. I don't want to lose any of that, much less die. Yet again and again, we are reformed by God's love and God's presence through Christ. We are called to that work of reformation, the journey of letting the old fall away for something new to emerge. Change, even when it is welcomed, means death of something else. For Jesus, everything that he does is a reflection of who he is. And the truest reflection of Jesus, the truest identity of Jesus, will be seen in the hour of his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus moves through death so that there will not be any place that we go that Jesus has not already been. But then Jesus rises to new life so that we 
might follow there also. When we were baptized in Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of our lives of faith. This is what our baptismal journey is about. The resurrection doesn't just happen on that beautiful first Easter morning. It happens anytime there is new life. And new life happens anytime we cast off the weight of the status quo. When we refuse to follow social and cultural norms and expectations and embrace the abnormal life that Jesus invites us into, where all are beloved and all flourish. This is the work of reform, of reformation, and the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus asks us to hate our life, Jesus isn't asking us to hate our family, to hate our friends, to hate our jobs, to hate our community. Jesus is asking us to hate the status quo, to hate the cultural norms that cause us to be in conflict with one another, to cause us to see one person as human and the other as less than human. Jesus calls us to hate those parts of life that separate us from God. Author Oshetta Moore explains this much better than I can in her new book, Dear White Peacemakers. She writes, We were made to reflect the generous, self-giving love of God. When God breathed into the first human, igniting his soul with divine love, God never expected us to prove our worth or fight for significance. We were already worthy. We were already significant. Out of striving to prove ourselves to God, sin entered into the world. And not only introduced an anxiety of what God believes about our inherent identities, but also fueled the flames of competition between image bearers. Our current iteration of that is that of racism and the lie of white supremacy. She goes on to give us the first step in reform, claiming our belovedness. Because, she says, without belovedness, all you have to build your identity on are the lies of white supremacy. When you are held up in a system as superior and right simply because of the color of your skin, then you must live up to a certain standard of excellence, or you expect a certain level of comfort. Owning your belovedness because it's evidence of a reality where God's unconditional grace and love are standard, and not some arbitrary social construct, is an essential act of resistance to the dehumanization of white supremacy. We often stop 
at our understanding of belovedness as that internal adjustment to live a more peaceful and gentle life. But belovedness is a powerful weapon used by the Spirit. What the world needs are more white peacemakers who know they are beloved by a loving God and from that overflow seek the belovedness of others. Can you hear how this challenges the normal life, the normal culture? How it upends the status quo? Can you hear the echoes of the greatest commandment here? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? Oshada continues, Dear white peacemaker, Jesus says that in this world we will have trouble. But two, take heart, for he has overcome the world. He did this by first owning his belovedness and then proclaiming it to every single person he met. His belovedness empowered him to challenge social hierarchies based on fear of the other, offer relief to those who have been oppressed, and eventually to sacrificially love on the cross. When you are grounded in something other than your works or results, when you are grounded in a truer, deeper, soul-healing confidence, you can continue to press, even if it means death to all your comforts and control. This is the kind of death that Jesus is calling us to. This is the kind of death that bears fruit. This is the kind of losing our life that not only helps us gain a different kind of life, but helps provide a new kind of life for all of God's good creation. We own our belovedness so we can proclaim the belovedness of others. Again and again, we are being reformed. The process is uncomfortable. But the status quo is untenable. When change happens within us, what could possibly take root and flourish? This week, I'd like you to really reflect on the status quo. I'd like to challenge you to find five minutes of time and make a list of everything that creates or maintains the status quo. It can be the status quo of our church, our local community, our society, our nation, etc. Name anything that comes to mind. You can start with my example from today, white supremacy. Upholds a status quo. Then, on a separate sheet of paper, make a list of things that disrupt or dismantle the status quo. Again, name anything that comes to mind. So if you put my example of white supremacy on the list, then what disrupts it? Owning our belovedness and letting that overflow into seeing the belovedness of others. They don't have to be as fancy as that. They could be something even simpler. Anything that comes to mind that can dismantle 
the status quo. That is abnormal. That messes up the usual systems of how we do things. Then take inventory of those two lists. Where do you see the spirit at work? Where do you see reformation in, in action? Where can you join in that work of the spirit? I leave you today with a blessing poem for peacemakers by Meta Herrick Carlson. This blessing has come near to your work and has already noticed a rumble beneath our feet. This feels different from preservation for making begins beyond the instinct to protect and the hesitation around loss. Your making will not settle for what has already been and pushes on possibility without waiting for permission. It is powerful and free, which threatens the veneer of circumstances long unchallenged. They will tell you to quiet down or stop altogether. Persist, you maker of peace, in defiance of every invitation to use your power for something else. Showing up matters, and like the earth's tremble, can leave cracks in the facades that need to fall away in favor of peace stirred up for all. Amen. <laughs>